and this is Changing the Narrative. I'm your host, David Reeves, and we are changing the narrative. We've been spoon-fed a narrative of naturalism, of atheism for years, for generations. Uh, It all started when a man by the name of Charles Darwin happened to publish works, and he published those works as if they were factual about the origin of life, about evolutionary theory. It overtook the scientific community by storm, but not everyone is publishing works that are fictional in nature. Some people actually use real science, and I have with me today Micah Bowman uh, on the program to discuss a little bit further on that. Micah, welcome welcome to the program. Appreciate it. Glad to be here. Uh, So we, uh, we were talking just before we went on air about your dissertation. You just published the first chapter. Mm -hmm. You're working on your PhD at Baylor. Correct. Um, You have a bachelor's, master's in in biology. Yes. Um, Tell me just a little bit about what the the PhD is going to be about. Okay, the PhD is, the dissertation focus is really looking at using artificial intelligence, machine learning, deep learning for the purpose of biomonitoring. Biomonitoring just means we're using organisms that live in nature for determining, say, if a stream is healthy, if a lake is healthy. We're collecting organisms, and based upon what's living there, because some are very tolerant to pollution, for instance, some are not very tolerant, based on what lives there, you'll know, is this healthy, is it not healthy? So... Artificial intelligence is just taking the world by storm right now. So we're looking at, is that a feasible thing to use for identifying organisms in an aquatic environment? Which means we have to image them. So we're pumping water through a machine that has built-in artificial intelligence, and it's imaging everything that flows in front of it. And then based upon a a training library that's already been pre-built, um, it's able to recognize, okay, that's this species, that's this species. So in other words, we hear all about AI right now. Mm-hmm. It's become this new popular thing. And a lot of times AI is in the context of, uh, uh, oh no, the machines are taking over. Right. Which of course, there there is another side to this story. AI can be abused. But your point is you're able to use computers to accelerate research, whereas we might be looking at having, uh, you know, 100 researchers on your team analyzing these different images, trying to figure out what biomolecules, et cetera, et cetera, uh, or we could tell the computer, all right, you learn yourself how to interpret all of this, and let's use you in place of 100 researchers that I would have to source, that I would have to pay for, that I would have to somehow find people willing to do all of this. And now science is able to accelerate because of the computers and the technology involved. Right, and that's, that is the main focus, the main reason we're looking into this is to speed up the process. Okay. Because data acquisition, you need the data. You need to know how many of each taxa are there so you can know if it's healthy. You can know what remediation is needed if it's not. Mm-hmm. And so if we can speed the process up to where you almost have instantaneous results, you don't have to wait for the length of time it takes to pick through all the samples and find the bugs and then send them to someone that knows uh-huh. how to identify them and pay them a large amount of money to do that. Uh-huh. And then maybe six months later, if they're not too busy, right. you finally have data. This can be almost instantaneous. Wow. So it's it's really going to speed up that process of finding out just how healthy these bodies of water are. Okay. Is this something that where you can purchase server space to do the calculations or, or how does this work? Do you have 
internally in university the resources to do this? There is a company that we work with. Okay. Um, and so my professor has paired up with them, teamed up with them. They've received grant money okay. and they've built a machine that has that. And so the software is part of the machine that you get. You get a laptop with the software downloaded. Um, and so they, they're kind of hosting that software okay. right now. And then you use that to build your training library. So I'll find all these organisms and I'll see what they are. We'll run them through and tell the machine, this is what that looks like. Right. And so based upon the pre-trained library, it's able to pick out features from the image. For instance, maybe the intensity of the pixel, um, how many edge pixels there are and huh. various other, like uh, some 80 something different features are taken from that to then make a decision, oh, that's this organism. Wow. So based upon multiple organisms being sent through, it's getting a lot of data to work with, which like it's hard for humans to work with big data like that, but computers can do it very efficiently. Okay, so if you had to estimate how have you trained it so far, what is your recognition rate? So what I've done so far is trying to get up to about 500 images per class. Okay. So for instance, if I want to use um, one class of a caddis fly, for instance, mm -hmm. so I will have a lot of examples of that caddis fly. We'll run them through. Okay. And then and that it trains will... the AI mm -hmm. to say when you see something that looks like this, right. it is likely going to be correct. And then you just keep doing that with every different species or every different type of organism that you're right. trying to identify. Yeah. We're not down to species. I did say species earlier, but okay. we're not down to species. Okay. Okay. We're really looking at the family level gotcha. because the, in science, um, specifically for macroinvertebrates, the family level is the most used right. for calculating like scores of, of health of that stream, for instance. Okay. Well, let's... Let's back up because that's really interesting that you say that the family level is many times the most useful designation. But if we go back and let's let's kind of relate this to a biblical implication, mm -hmm. why wouldn't species be the most important thing if everything has evolved and different species obviously are going to interact in different ways? But if the Bible is correct and perhaps kind falls somewhere along that family level, somewhere in that, that general region, mm -hmm. then that means that the families of animals, the basic family groups, are going to be kind of where you start, yeah. and those will be similar in many aspects. Right, and morphology is probably the biggest thing that's being looked at with the images um, to know, okay, what this organism is. So morphologically speaking, you're going to have a lot of similarity among the family level of classification, okay. like the family level of dogs, for instance. Yeah. They're very similar overall pattern. Yes, there's a lot of variety. Sure. We've got some really small ones. We've got <laughs> some big ones. Um, but overall, morphologically, there is a, a characteristic look of that organism. Okay. And when you get down to macroinvertebrates, especially, there is an, a characteristic look. Like for mayflies, you when you're identifying the aquatic larval species, uh, not the adults, but the aquatic larval species, you're looking at, for instance, abdominal gills that it has. You're looking at three tails on its abdomen, okay. uh, three end filaments. Um, you're looking at, for instance, the shape of the head yeah. to know what um, level that is. So the family level is a very broad, morphologically similar, yes. which makes sense for using that for the artificial intelligence to learn from. Absolutely. And then as AI improves, as the software used for uh, artificial intelligence, the machine learning software, the, the deep learning, convolutional neural networks, things like that improve, then 
maybe it'll be better to be able to distinguish some of those smaller features that separate um, classes, for instance, or maybe down to genera. Gotcha. Uh, but that's probably down the road some ways at this point. Right. Right. Okay. So when we look at these different types of organisms, a lot of times the, the thing that comes to most people's minds is the microscopic world, the tiny little organisms that are floating in water, for instance, or whatever it might be. People say, well, do they really do any good? Like, why would God create these types of things? Do they have a purpose in biology? Oh, very much. Okay. Uh, and I remember when I took a class at Baylor called Aquatic Biology, where we were going out to streams, collecting bugs that lived there and identifying them down to uh, genera, if possible. Okay. And so I remember thinking, I knew there were bugs in the water. Yeah. But I never knew how much diversity <laughs> and how much life there mm -hmm. actually was. So to go out there and collect and then be able to look under a microscope and see, honestly, the complexity of them. Yeah. Well, we think about small things like, okay, those are insignificant to us. Uh -huh. A lot of us don't care about the bugs that live in the stream, but they're significant to God. They're something he created. So he put design even into these small creatures. Mm -hmm. And one of the groups that I really like are the caddisflies okay. because they build cases. They build little homes. Huh. So as soon as they hatch out of the egg, these small little instars are going to build this little case uh -huh. and they grow it with them. And the cases are intricate. Some of the cases are made of tiny little pebbles. Some are made with snail shells, snails that have died and they piece these snail shells together. Really? Some are made with pieces of uh, leaves that they've cut and they put them into like a square shape and they build that square bigger as they grow. Uh -huh. So how do they know to do that? First of all, <laughs> right. this is tiny little bug, uh -huh. which doesn't know anything about anything, but uh -huh. it's building structures, houses to live in. Um, there's even a lady that will take these uh, pupa of the caddisflies uh -huh. and she will put them in aquariums, tanks, and actually put like crushed up jewels. Yeah. Um, like oh ja my jade or... And so allow them to yeah. use those jewels and then to she build sells the them as jewelry. <laughs> so it's it's cool. Like okay, <laughs> and see, I, this is something that I mean, you know, I've seen photos of these types of things. How do you spell caddis? Caddis C A D D I S C A D D I S. See, I'm gonna yeah. have to I'm gonna have to Google this afterwards. Caddis fly jewelry. <laughs> I want to I want to see a photo of these of these things. Mm -hmm. uh, how big are they in general? It, they they range based upon the species. Um, some of them, obviously, and based on the instar, because right. uh, they have a hollow metabolist growth, meaning they're going to pupate, they're going to have the egg, the pupa, and then various larval stages. Um, I said that wrong. Not hollow metabolists. They have hemimetabolists because they have okay. various instars. Okay. I might be wrong about that too. <laughs> it's been a couple semesters since I took that class, but they have various instars and they grow between each of those instars. Yeah. Um, it would be hollow because after that, they're going to become the adult. So oh, hollow gotcha. metabolists. Okay. But those various instars range in size. So the first instar is small, very hard to identify. Right. Once they get to fifth instar or more, depending once again on the species, they're going to have um, a recognizable, a much more structure. recognizable structure and pattern. So you typically use those for identifying. Um, but yeah, those cases can be very small, but then they'll keep growing them as they get bigger and bigger. Wow. Wow. Again, this is something that a lot of times I love focusing on animals. You and I have, mm -hmm. uh, we worked together. Uh, we produced a, a video series called, uh, God's living treasures, animals yep. of Alaska with Dr. Job Martin. And, um, we looked at 
all of these incredible creatures, most of them things that a child would recognize, a, a polar bear, right. uh, you know, a, a moose, a caribou, a, a sea otter, right? But then you go down to the microscopic world or to the tiny world, and you see these odd creatures that are just as fascinating. They all have a story to be told, mm -hmm. and very few people are telling that story. Right. And, and to hit on the use, like, do they have a practical use? Yeah, they do. Um, a lot of them are shredders. A lot of them are detritivores. So you think here and you experience fall. We didn't, don't experience fall in Florida or in Texas right. where I am now. So as all of these leaves fall, you're going to get a lot of them into the streams. It's the job of a lot of these macro invertebrates to actually break down the bigger particles into smaller particles. Yeah. And then some of the other macro invertebrates that are there are going to consume those smaller particles to help clear up the stream. And they're able to actually process. Yeah. And you get all of this organic matter, this organic loading, which basically is providing the growth for the next season. As fall leaves, as you've got spring coming in, you've got all this growth happening because of those leaves that Wow. Well, once on the tree, now they've gone into the stream, <laughs> they've been processed, and everything that lives in those streams are able to utilize what we see as dead leaves. They're able to utilize it as food. Okay. And so it does have, they have an important purpose. We don't have all of these streams and bodies of water choked out with dead organic matter. It's being decomposed and being broken down. So uh, we have a mutual friend. I ha have had him on uh, the Wonders Without Number television program in the past to talk about God's environmental cleanup systems. And Dr. Martin has has basically pointed out that if we didn't have these types of organisms that you're talking about, then we would be sitting on this massive pile of yep. decomposing leaves, straw, everything that happens throughout the world. It would just continue to pile up because... There would be no microorganisms, no environmental cleanup creatures, no bone-eating vultures, no all these types of things that yeah. we look at as oh, maybe disgusting. Right. They're holding an important purpose of keeping the earth clean from all of these decaying animals, plants, things that are constantly living and dying in cycle. Yeah, yeah that whole ecosystem, you need every part of the ecosystem or the ecosystem breaks down. So those cleanup crew is absolutely essential to keep the ecosystem healthy so it can continue for generations. Okay, so this brings up another interesting point is it's kind of like a chicken and an egg problem. Yeah. Because <laughs> if you think about this, if we have all of these plants that are going through these growth cycles, living, dying, dropping leaves, uh, et cetera, et cetera, then you've got this, this system of buildup. And then millions of years down the road, the creatures come along and evolve the ability, the, the want to eat those things, right? Well, wait a second. By then, we've already got a problem. Yeah. So you actually have to have these things living, created in a, in a simultaneous nature together with each other in order for this ecosystem system to work purposefully and productively, right? Right. Yeah. Can you imagine trying to be God and think of all of that? Yeah. Like, okay, what do I need to make this work? We would have not thought about bacteria for the breakdown. We wouldn't have right. thought about these breakdown creatures. We'd have been like, oh, look at all the big charismatic stuff that's uh -huh. out there. Let's make that. Oh, it's beautiful. <laughs> well, what happens when the leaves fall? What happens? Yeah. God knew everything. He had it all from the very beginning. It was like, this is how it's going to work. Here you go. Let's make it. 
isn't that kind of what we're trying to do? Engineers today are mimicking God in this respect, in that when they create new things or when they design new elements, there's been this push for the last 50 years now. How can we make this environmentally friendly? Mm-hmm. When it goes into a dump, what will happen? How long will it take to break down? Could we could we put some type of a polymer in here that would break down more efficiently yeah. through natural process? In other words, what we're doing now in trying to preserve the environment is something that God has always done. He's baked it in to nature. Mm-hmm. And I find that quite incredible. Yeah. We're, we're trying to be God, like you said. And, I mean, we can't do it as good as him, but yeah. he also gives us the environment to study, to look at so that we can be better right. at it. And I think that brings up a good thing to talk about, the idea of environmentalism. Yes. It, it seems like there's two distinct sides of environmentalism. The, oh, just use it and abuse it. You don't, right. don't worry about it. And then there's the, oh, don't use it, protect it. Uh-huh. The environment is the most important thing. But as Christians, we need to follow right in the middle, be in the balance and say, no, God gave us the earth for our benefit, the dominion mandate. We're Mm -hmm. supposed to be in dominion. We're supposed to subdue it, use it for our benefit. But at the same time, we ought to care for it. As Christians, we ought to do our part to to help the environment to stay um, pristine so that way we can continue having it for successive generations. And so finding that balance, finding that fine line of not just using and abusing it, but but using it for our benefit because we're supposed to. That's why God created all of it and put us in charge of it to use it. Um, But being able to use it wisely, be a good steward of what it is that God has given to us. So true. Uh, And that's where we're kind of getting into basically climate change, uh, environmentalism, and when you when you break it down just like that, it kind of becomes clear. Everybody falls into one camp or the other. You mm-hmm. either hug trees or you're out there to burn as much fuel as possible. And and not everybody, obviously, but right. everybody's thinking of it as, oh, we must choose one side or the other. When in reality, there is that balanced approach, which is healthy, but it also allows us to utilize things for our own benefit. Use, yeah. but not abuse. Yeah. And like you said, that was established in the very beginning because God put mankind specifically different from apes, specifically different from all other creatures. God put mankind, humans, in control over the natural world. He gave them dominion over the creeping things, over the the snakes that we're going to pull out in another episode of yes. uh, Wonders shortly. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. I, and I think that that's something that a lot of people, they miss. They really do. Uh, if only we were to take a, a balanced approach, how much more would society benefit? Because we would be looking at both sides of the story. We would be saying, how does this benefit us as humankind? Mm-hmm. And how does this affect the environment? Yeah, that's wise. Um, and you were talking about us being separate from the animals. We're the only creatures that are able to study what he's created so we can make those decisions and be wise with what has been provided. What you're saying is that the the chimpanzee doesn't sit around philosophizing over climate change. Exactly. (laughs) So biologically speaking, and this is kind of your expertise, we're seeing a lot of different creatures, and those creatures appear incredibly engineered for the purpose which they seem to fulfill within ecology, within nature. 
Is that what you're finding? That is definitely what you're finding. And if you think about, for instance, invasive species, there are so many niches that need to be filled within an ecosystem. Okay. Every in, every part of it, all the breakdown crews, et cetera. And if you have, for instance, another species that's brought in, which has a similar niche to something that's already living there, yeah. they both can't work. Oh, to, like they, they both can't be there. So there's competition taking place, and oftentimes the invasive species is caused, called invasive because it's out-competing the one that's native to the area. And so it drives that one out, and you're just left with now the invasive species filling that niche uh -huh. because every niche needs to be filled. Uh -huh. And so you've got every single part of that ecosystem running how it's supposed to. When God originally created it, he created everything to have a niche, everything to fulfill its purpose. And if any part of that niche is gone, the ecosystem breaks down. If, I had a friend, um, it's a mutual friend actually, on uh, the Wonders Without Number television program uh, a few years back, uh, Dr. Jim Johnson. Okay. And uh, Dr. Johnson pointed out something very similar to what you mentioned that actually worked in one case beneficially, and it was in the case of the Black Plague. Okay. Uh, the Black Plague was absolutely devastating mm -hmm. Europe. And uh, many people, many Historians and scientists agree that a good, um, I, I guess, one of the major contributors were this this species of black rats that they were carrying, uh, they were carriers of the disease. Mm -hmm. Well, Dr. Johnson points out that there was a particular ship that uh, was sailing from, I, I believe it was Norway, that brown rats... Uh, who were much more competitive for food sources than these black rats had had gotten aboard of. They were, they were on this ship. This ship sailed down to a, an area in Europe that uh, when the rats got out with all of the other uh, the, the packages, the cargo and all of that, the brown rats began to outcompete for food, for everything, mm. the black rats. The brown rats are not carriers of that disease. Okay. They were not able to transmit it. And so, therefore, they actually suppressed the black rat population, and they suppressed the black plague. Yeah. So, in other words, there are always these considerations, and sometimes they work in favor, but many times there's something that if we're introducing things, it's harmful to the environment. Yeah, it, it can be very bad. Um, I had the opportunity when I was doing my master's to go to the island of Viaquez off the coast of Puerto Rico and do some research there for a two-week field study. And they had introduced um, rats, was it rats? No, it was mongoose okay. into the island to help take care of the rat problem that they were having. Yeah. But the mongoose, basically, they, they didn't eat the rats. They've instead been actually eating all the sea turtle eggs that oh, have been being wow. laid there. Um, they're hunting at different times and the rats are hunting, so they're not even out at the same time. So it was just a complete dismal failure where like as humans, if we're doing that, we're yeah. using biological control to try to control some other pest, for instance, we need to be careful doing that. We need to right. think through everything and it's probably best that we don't do that. <laughs> we find other methods to control pests. Uh -huh. Um, we've got examples control. in history of humans trying to step in and yeah here's a new species introduced to the area and just gets out of hand yeah, right right maybe, so maybe wise. god is in control and maybe we should uh, try to, to allow him uh, to obviously work through us but mm -hmm. kind of be in charge yeah uh okay so tell me just a little bit about uh second chapter 
of your thesis, of your dissertation, is going to be on? We're going to be looking at larval fish, okay. using artificial intelligence for identifying different larval fish species. Because fish, larval fish species are so small, and yeah. not a lot of morphological distinction. Uh, color is very important for helping to determine what species they are. So by using artificial intelligence uh, and pictures of these small uh, organisms, seeing if it can pick up on the small little details that maybe the human eye yeah. misses or the human eye, like you have to be trained for a long period of time to be able to recognize those things, uh -huh. seeing if it can uh, do a better job at that. And we're going to run some different types of um, artificial intelligence. We're going to compare support vector machines to convolutional neural networks, okay. um, possibly random forest, which are all just types of classifiers to make a decision on, okay, is it yeah. this species or is it this species? Um, or class, not not species, but is gotcha. it this group of organism or is this group of organism? So we'll be testing that. Uh, we've already got a lot of the data collected, yeah. going through the analyzing process so we can write that up. Um, but that'll be yeah the set, the next chapter that we're looking at. Interesting. Uh, and let's let's kind of wrap this up by bringing it right back around to AI because what I'm hearing is you are using technology to. Um, to help with scientific research, mm -hmm. right? But in the end, it wasn't some computer that thought up, oh, maybe we can use this to do this, to do that, to do that. It is human intelligence that is saying, well, we could utilize this technology and therefore allowing computer technology, which we created, by the way, yeah. uh, to, to assist us in tasks. It always comes back to human intelligence. right? And that is something that a lot of people say, oh, well, human intelligence will be surpassed by artificial intelligence at some point in the future. What point might that be, and do you think it might ever happen? I don't, I don't think so. Okay. I think if it were to happen to where it could get to that bad, I think God would come back before then. <laughs> um, <laughs> yep. But you're right. Like We are the ones writing the software, writing the code, yep. which is not easy if you don't know anything about coding trying to code in python or trying which yeah. i like that coding uh, language because it's python yeah, there you go. um or trying to code in r like having to know how to code is uh -huh. is difficult and humans are the ones that are using that intelligence to create the code that then the machine learning the artificial intelligence is using to make its decisions so you're right it always goes back to there being a human intelligence which was given to us by god yes the supreme intelligence <laughs> saying, hey, here, have dominion. You can use all of this for your benefit. And and we're, we're using that that God's given us to be able to better the scientific world. Interesting. And make scientific discoveries and make discoveries more rapidly than per perhaps we could do without the artificial intelligence. That sounds like a good plan. Uh, if we always give glory to the Creator, use what He's given us wisely, then we will be amazed at, uh, at what we see in our daily lives and throughout the universe, we're able to explore his creation more effectively. Thank you, Micah Bowman, for being here. And uh, I really appreciate it. I can't wait to pull out some uh, snakes on the Looking other TV set it. for a second. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to have to have you back appreciate again. It. And thank you for joining us on Changing the Narrative. I'm David Reeves. And until next time, I want you to keep looking up because truly, the heavens declare the glory of God. Find us on all social platforms to stay informed.
Watch Genesis Science Network 24-7 for free on Roku, Fire TV, and on our website. Visit the world's largest origins-based store, creationsuperstore.com.